Steve Shepard here. Thanks for listening. When people think of maritime commerce, if they think of it at all, they tend to think of container ports with the cranes that look like those gigantic imperial walkers from Star Wars. But it's much more than that. I recently caught up with Gary Kessler and asked him about the challenges we face in the maritime sector. Here's Gary. When we talk about the maritime transportation sector, and of course, you know, ports are, are integral to that, I think one of the, the high points that I really want people to think about and contextualize the rest of this is the fact that the United States is a maritime nation. And the problem is, if you go to most people and ask them, you know, when, when you think about maritime, um, what do you think of? Well, you know, they think about yachts because we see those on TV and the movies. They think about the fact that their that friends own a fishing boat and once took them out fishing. They know that the cruise line is suffering in Florida because of the COVID pandemic, but they don't think about cargo and they don't think about where does all the stuff that I have come from and how does it get here? And that is an interesting question. Let's talk magnitude and scope for a moment. The United States alone has 25,000 miles of coastal and inland waterways, 361 ports, 124 shipyards, more than 3,500 maritime facilities, 20,000 bridges, 50,000 federal aids to navigation, and 95,000 miles of shoreline that interconnect with critical highways, railways, airports, and pipelines. That entire interleaked sector collectively generates more than $5 trillion every year. That's a staggering quarter of the country's GDP. So those numbers aren't merely interesting, they're existential. The statistics that are in the report, 25,000 miles of coastal and inland waterways, the 361 ports we have in this country, the fact that there are, well, 12 million plus recreational boaters is part of this as well. But The maritime transportation sector is so much more than just the ports, and it's more than the ships. We have all of the users of the waterways from military to public safety, to work boats, to commercial vessels, passenger vessels. In Florida, we have a tremendous tour industry based around fishing and scuba. One of the neat things I think about the fact that we have this plan is the very fact that the plan was written calls the attention to the fact maritime is a critically important infrastructure. It talks about the intermodal connection to how many tens of thousands of miles of roadway do we have in this country and railway. And the fact that a bad actor can send something in by ship that lands in Miami, but the bad thing they're sending might end up in Arkansas. So the interconnectedness of all of this is is really, really significant. But then in addition to ports and shipping, of course, we have the manufacturers, we have the shipping lines, we have the cargo lines. So there are are many vectors to uh, causing problems into the MTS. And for that reason, the federal government recently released its proposed National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan, a subset of the National Strategy for Maritime Security, built around the principles of freedom of the seas, the defense of commerce to ensure the uninterrupted flow of shipping and the movement of desirable goods and people across borders while at the same time screening out dangerous people and material, the plan addresses three key areas, risks and standards, information and intelligence gathering, and the creation of a maritime cybersecurity 
workforce. The first section of the plan discusses ways to mitigate risks and promote the use of cybersecurity standards. Now, there are plenty of cybersecurity standards, and there's frameworks and models that we can use and all that kind of stuff. But the mitigation of risk actually turns out to be really important. If we view risk to mean vulnerabilities in our systems, and in fact, vulnerability is the word that's used in the plan, we really have a good fighting chance at combating cyber weaknesses because vulnerabilities are internal to our systems and we can analyze our systems, presumably find the vulnerabilities. And as soon as we find the vulnerabilities, again, presumably, we should be able to fix those. So we need to have ways in which we can find, root out, and eliminate vulnerabilities, which now requires, though, that we have a deeper understanding of our systems. It's important that we don't confuse risk with threat. In the cybersecurity business, there's a maxim called the vulnerabilities trump threats maxim. And basically, it allows that, you know, vulnerabilities, like I said, they're internal, I can find them, I can fix them. Whereas threats are external. I don't understand what my threat landscape looks like necessarily from day to day. And new threats may pop up, old threats may go away. And if I plan my defenses strictly around the threat model, then if I get the threat model wrong, I'm screwed because my defensive model is wrong. Whereas if I build my defenses around my vulnerabilities, I have a much better chance of being able to build good defenses against a plethora of different types of threats. Now, the irony of that is that the converse is what gets you funding. So by that, I mean, if I go to my managers and I say, listen, we have our web server based on Apache version 16 and version 18 is out, we, we better fix this. The managers are likely to say, oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, in the next budget cycle, be sure to ask for some money. Whereas if I say the Russians are after us, well, I'm going to get money right now because of the threat. So interestingly, you should build your cyber defense around your vulnerabilities, but all too often, we are so focused on threats that causes us fear, we fund the fear. Another critical point of focus that's discussed in the plan is deconfliction, that is, establishing a framework under which the intelligence gathering activities by different agencies of the government are mutually supportive. We need to streamline the process of regulation, inspection, certification, etc., just to get out of our own way and not have a lot of different agencies in different departments of the U.S. government having potentially conflicting roles. And we need to fund the efforts. It, it, it's not sufficient just to give somebody the responsibility. You also have to give them sufficient funding and the authority to carry out the responsibility. So if the National Security Council identifies an agency which is going to have a certain responsibility, the agency needs to be funded sufficiently so that they can exercise their authority and succeed at their task. In some cases, this has been an issue in the past. I think that was one of the lessons from El Faro disaster was that the Coast Guard had responsibility for ship safety, but due to funding, they were outsourcing a lot of inspections. And, and we need to try to avoid that trap. Indeed, we do. The good news is that there are success stories out there that we can learn from. A great model for this is the InfraGuard program, which was originally started by the FBI back in 1997. And it was a public-private sector information sharing program. There are several nascent information sharing groups within the MTS. Right now, 
It's really aimed at organizational membership. It costs money to be a member. And a lot of the information sharing is only amongst members. So the issue is, is that individuals within the maritime sector are not necessarily feeling that they are a part of that information sharing program. And in fact, all of us would benefit by groups that bring together the ISACs, the ISAOs, maritime intel centers, such as the one that was just built at the Port of Los Angeles, and individuals, so that if an individual sees something, they have an idea about maybe where should I report this? What kind of feedback is there? Is there something that will go out to everybody who wants to be a member of this maritime infraguard? As Gary points out, maritime is a large and complicated beast with lots of moving parts. It's a dynamic sector, constantly changing, but so are the threats, hence the need to protect against them. That requires more than a plan. It requires a series of deliberate actions across the board. We need to find a low-cost way to provide training and education related to cyber threats to all levels of the MTS. Managers and CEOs obviously need one level, and they certainly themselves need to commit to such cyber planning and education. And that's going to ripple down within the organization because leaders really provide leadership that way. Crews, administrative staff, dock workers, they all need a basic awareness of the cyber threats because cyber attacks that succeeded in 2010 are still working today in 2021. Nothing has changed. Well, many things have changed. Actually, they've gotten worse. The U.S. Coast Guard, for their part, has facility inspectors that primarily concentrate on physical security. Coast Guard is already providing cyber expertise in each of their districts, and I believe that will ripple down to the the sectors. And I can see the day when we have facility cyber inspectors working hand-in-hand with the cyber inspectors that are concentrating on the physical aspects. But what is it going to take to get there? I asked Gary. I think like a lot of things related to safety within the maritime industry, we need to have the same type of tiered approach to cyber. I mean, clearly, the training that you give to a CEO about the importance of safety programs within their environment is very different level than you're actually giving to the dock worker and to the manager. I think that this is not as Herculean a task as it might appear to be. The fact is, people are using computers in all aspects of their life. If you teach somebody the appropriate cyber hygiene on their smartphone and how to protect their own banking application, then they'll bring that knowledge into the workplace. And I think that's really the level that we need to personalize this to the individuals that are dealing with the systems. Maritime has its own unique cybersecurity issues. We have our own uh, marine electronics that are different from every other aspect of the universe. We certainly have issues with GPS. We have issues with AIS. But the fact is that if you teach somebody the appropriate paranoia level that they need to have when dealing with electronic communication systems, they can bring that to all of the unique systems that they run across. For example, if you're on a ship and there is a computer system and nobody on the ship knows what it's there for, You don't need to be a cybersecurity expert to scratch your head and say, what's that doing on the bridge of my vessel? So it's just merely making people aware 
that there are bad guys out there and intelligent actors who are really trying to cause you harm. I asked Gary if he has any final thoughts about the National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan and where we go from here. So the National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan is important for our industry, and it's a fine plan, but it is a strategic plan. It's a high-level softball strategy. And the real test indeed is going to be how this gets implemented. I believe the fact that we wrote the plan indicates that there is seriousness at the highest levels of government. And like any strategic plan, it's, it's not perfect. It's not comprehensive. It's got a number of really good ideas that provide a kernel for more ideas. But it's a chance to address a critically important infrastructure that is largely unseen by a large segment of our population. It's critical to our economy. It is critical to our way of life. It's critical to our national security. Gary Kessler with his thoughts about the recently announced National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan. I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for joining us.